Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to be talking about something that many people across Europe hope will never happen and that is a President Marine Le Pen. In order to help us make sense of how this could happen and what it would mean. I'm joined by two of my colleagues from Paris. First up is Manuel Lafont-Rabnouille, who is the head of the ECFR office in Paris and a senior policy fellow at ECFR. And also joining us from the Paris office is Tara Varma, who is a researcher in the Paris office, who has been following the election very, very closely. So why don't we start with the background to this election, Manuel. What is it that makes the idea of a President Le Pen not seem completely fanciful in 2017? Yeah, um, it's been it's been a very strange election uh, compared with the president presidential campaign. Uh, it's been very fluid, very open. Uh, all the early favorites were actually quite early uh, out of the race. The people who we thought would be candidates, like President Hollande, decided not to run. Alain Juppé lost the primary on the Les Républicains side, and is uh, the one who defeated him wasn't Nicolas Sarkozy, who tried uh, a comeback, but François Fillon. And on the socialist side, the space opened by the fact that Hollande didn't uh, go. Could have been, should have been, if you were listening to the newspaper at the time, seized by uh, Manuel Valls, the Prime Minister, and actually it's Benoit Hamon who now is the candidate. And so there is all these uh, things, but there's something more structural than this, which is France had been evolving from a two-party system to a three-party system, with the Front National being a very strong force. Uh, and now it's including, uh, is maybe becoming, turning into a four-party system because Emmanuel Macron the former uh, finance minister, has created his own movement. He says it, doesn't, it isn't a party, En Marche. And so you have those four forces, traditional left, En Marche, traditional right, and uh, Front National. And, and that is very open between these three, four candidates. The most likely scenario right now is that Le Pen will qualify for the second round, and that has been the, one of the rare stable things when looking at the election. And he... She should be facing uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, if things stay as they are now, and probably they won't. So, Tara, Manuel has explained how in some ways it's a perfect storm for Marine Le Pen from, in terms of the other parties. The fact that you know, there's no sitting president coming in with the benefits of incumbency. And then the right-wing party selected François Fillon, who then ended up stumbling and having all sorts of problems, legal problems um, and scandals which have delegitimated him. But as well as the external environment changing, there's been a profound change in the Front National over the last couple of decades. Um, do you want to explain how Marine Le Pen has reinvented the National Front and actually turned it into a party that is no longer toxic uh, in the way that it was when her father was uh, leading it? Yeah, I think actually don't we we underestimate the extent to which it has changed. Uh, when the Front National was created in 1972, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen's economic program was very close to Ronald Reagan. So that gives you an idea of where we are today. We're actually Florian Philippot, who's the vice president of the party, 
uh, is actually the one leading on economic and social issues. He has transformed the narrative of the FN completely. He arrived there in 2009, so actually it's not even a decade of transformation. The real transformation of making the FN a party that could win an, an election, and not only just one election, but the most important in the French um, electoral system, he has made that possible. And I have to say that one of the... Um, one of the things that we struggle to understand is how the FN works, how it thinks, and we struggle with that because we don't really know how the elite works. So can you talk a bit about the way that Florian Philippot in particular has, has helped to detoxify the, the party? So he says, uh, his narrative is to say that he comes from the left, that he uh, followed Jean-Pierre Chevènement, who was a former socialist minister. A Eurosceptic uh, socialist minister. Exactly. Uh, this story has been debunked actually a few weeks ago. We don't really know whether he really followed him at some point, but at least that's how he defined himself. And that's how he tried to convince Marine Le Pen that there were many uh, constituencies that needed to be conquered in the north of France, in the south of France as well. Uh, constituencies where actually the economic situation was very dire and unemployment was rising. People were more and more distrustful of traditional parties who were not bringing the answers they were expecting. He has managed clearly to capitalize on that and he has a grand strategy. It's not that he did everything, but clearly he led the way. And his grand strategy is partly summed up in something which he said, which is that the Front National is neither on the left nor on the right, he, which makes it sound very much like New Labour. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if a that's good point. for the FN or New Labour, but... Clearly, he was the first to try and, and find uh, kind of the right middle. Uh, he wants to convince people who were already FN, FN voters, so people really more on the far right. Uh, but he wanted to reach out as well to people who were totally disillusioned. And that was his objective. And he actually, in a way, we need to know whether she's going to get to the second round and ultimately whether she's going to win or not. But he has managed to create an electorate which is indeed from the far right to the far left. So, and that is just one thing that is the very striking thing is there is this new strategy, but that strategy fits perfectly with this environment where voters are more and more dissatisfied with not just the political class in terms of they're out of touch or etc., but with the results, the track records of the government policies. So you, um, we've talked before, Manuel, about some of the groups that they've managed to, to bring into play who were close to the Front National before. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, so th there used to be a very uh, um, typical voter for the Front National who would be uh, um, someone who has um, not studied that much, um, maybe uh, smaller uh, companies, uh, popular classes, but there used to be these constituencies which were basically working as electoral dams against the Front National winning election and being able to, to get 50% of the vote. A Maginot line. <laughs> well, uh, we'll see if it ends better than with the Maginot line. They worked very well for almost 30 years. These used to be civil servants, these used to be women, and these used to be uh, Catholics which are very uh, prevalent in the west side of the country in terms of uh, voting pattern. Uh, and if you look at the numbers for the most recent elections over the last five, ten years, especially the last five years, 
actually these dams don't work so well anymore. You have more and more people, not just from uh, the police, for instance, who are civil servants who would say that, yes, the Front National at least is not a uh, 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 non-starter. And maybe even that they consider actually voting uh, really for a Front National candidate. Same with women, same with Catholic. So this strategy has uh, also been crafted in a way that can appeal to those constituencies and therefore you have a potentially broader electoral base for the Front National. So how much of that, Tara, is about the way that the Front National is is evolving? Because it's now not just a single uh, body in a way that you have different leaders who appeal to different constituents. Can you talk a bit about that maybe? So the way we really define it is that there is the FN of the South and the FN of the North. The leader of the FN of the South of France would be Marion Maréchal Le Pen. So she's the niece of, of Marion Le Pen, the, the leader of the party. And she, Marine Le Pen, they so. are in competition, actually. They were in competition quite uh, um, not so openly before and now very openly. Marine Le Pen and Marion Maréchal Le Pen, because Marion Maréchal Le Pen is very popular in the South. She's 27 or 28, I think, very young. She was the youngest uh, um, member of the Assemblée Nationale to be elected in 2012. So she is quite popular and she really appeals to the traditional Front National voter. Um, the FN of the North is... So she the, says that we're a party of the right rather than absolutely. a party of the centre. She's, she's against a, yeah. She's against, against gay marriage. Against abortion, against gay marriage. And she's really, I mean, we would say on the fringe, I guess, and uh, totally in opposition with Florian Philippot. But she looks very bourgeois as well. She's like she's less of a rock chick than her, than her, her aunt. She's a sort of classically beautiful, very... Um, but I think that's part of her appeal as well. Yeah. That, that's what works with her voters and what worked in a way quite a lot at the regional elections as well, where she wasn't elected ultimately, but she was a real contender right. facing, so, you know, an old-timer of <laughs> French politics. And the FN on the north is really a very, very different constituency. It used to be the constituency of the Communist Party, of the Socialist Party in the 90s. And he has managed to conquer that. And Marine Le Pen really puts them in competition. Basically, she expects both of them to deliver ultimately the presidential election. She'll need the FN of the south and the FN of the north to to conquer France. So we'll talk a bit more about the extent to which it's possible to conquer France and how to govern and, and the kind of electoral dynamics a bit later. But maybe now would be a good time to think about what the Front National stands for, particularly on European and foreign policy, because that is ultimately uh, why one of the reasons why the whole of the world is, is looking so with such interest and anxiety at, at what happens in France. What do we know, Manuel, about the, the foreign policy and, and European platform of the Front National? Well, it's very clear and very well illustrated by the one thing that everybody has heard about, which is that uh, she uh, is in favor of a Frexit. Uh, it's not only uh, getting out of the Eurozone, it's not only pulling out from Schengen, it's either the EU adapts in the way that I want it to work, which obviously would be much more uh, nationalist, sovereignist, not just intergovernmental, but something much uh, weaker and probably very much diluted. So either transform along the, the lines that I wish 
or I will go back to the French people for a referendum and people will have to vote on whether we stay in the EU or not. And I will, if I don't have a satisfying outcome in these negotiations within the EU, I will plead in favor of getting out of the EU. Under the current system, she is in favor of getting out of the EU. So this is a, a very different way to actually come with the same kind of policies that has been the Front National policy for a very long time since it starts, uh, which is very nationalist, very sovereignty uh, obsessed and a very classical sovereignty, uh, uh, a very classical way of understanding sovereignty. Sorry. So I like to, to go on to some of the other bits of the foreign policy platform. But before we do that, maybe you can interrogate this a bit further, because my understanding was that it's not been that clear exactly what she wants to do. At some points, she said that she wanted to leave the euro. At other points, she said that she wanted to do a David Cameron and do this renegotiation strategy. I mean, it's it's much clearer since uh, the Brexit. Uh, the Brexit has really helped her in clarifying that part of her speech, which doesn't mean that everything not is clear. For instance, on the eurozone. When people say, so how do you do that? Is it just re-establishing the franc? And then how does it work with the other currency? Because before the euro, precisely, it was a very complex European monetary system. And so she has had, in the recent period, several options about what to do and how to do it. So what, cetera, what are those options? Well, one of the things is that uh, you, you could have sort of a peg for the franc around whether it's the euro, if it still exists, or the mark, uh, if it doesn't. But at the same time, she doesn't want to call it a peg because it would be a peg to the mark, and that's precisely what she doesn't want to be Sounds like dominated a, by yeah, Germany. Exactly. Yeah, France <laughs> And so <laughs> she has come with a kind of other options. And, and part of the problem with the way that the campaign has unfolded uh, in France is that that debate really hasn't taken place as deeply as thoroughly as it should have. And we only have a few weeks left to make these things uh, uh, clearer and to force people to tell what are the options that they really uh, have in mind. And I think actually even her mind isn't totally made up. I mean, clearly uh, getting out of the euro is again a very, very much of a Filippo idea. It's his red line. He says that you cannot have any control on your country if you don't control your money. And so taking back control is taking back your money. And he pushes for that a lot. And she keeps going back and forth, actually, between what he advises and what other people advises. Okay, so that's... And she, know, and she knows that that's one part of her agenda which frightens the voters, including her voters, the most. And so she is obviously keeping some caution on the way she addresses it. Okay, so we can talk a bit more about how she would go about implementing that a bit later in the podcast when we talk about what a government actually looks like. But what are the other bits that we know about their foreign policy strategy? Presumably Russia might be uh, an but, interesting topic. Yes, Russia <laughs> is obviously quite important. And uh, th there is this... She is trying to cast herself as a goalist. And so she says, we don't want to be aligned and we are a great power who talks to other great powers. And obviously Russia is a great power, so we'll talk to great power. She insisted uh, that she has what it takes to be... Uh, a president, she has the stateswomanship, uh, and it, she was very uh, insistent on meeting with other head of states. She went to Egypt, met with the prime minister, then she went to Lebanon, then she went to Chad, and then President Putin said, You should come to Moscow and we'll meet and we'll have a photo op. The story is whether maybe they met together before, but in any case, if they did, then Putin didn't want any photo of him and Marine Le Pen. Right now, he has accepted this. 
Uh, and so that, that says something about the Russian have in mind. As far as the Front National is concerned, the importance of Russia is very much the kind of the FN version of a multipolar world where identity counts, Christian values counts, uh, fighting against terrorism trumps the rest, human rights are not really an issue. And, and that's very much uh, why she feels very much in think with Putin. And yet she actually doesn't believe that international law was violated in Ukraine, uh, that the UN is so important. And so it's a real departure from the French traditional foreign policy. So do, do you think that, because the other element of French foreign policy is, is kind of frequent interventions, military interventions in different places. How, how does she think about the war on terror, which you've seen? Exactly. At the same time, she bodies. says uh, defense is very important. And I think we should invest not just 2%, but 3% in defense. Uh, she doesn't say anything on uh, development assistance or humanitarian assistance. So there really is a focus on the military tool as a key major tool for foreign policy. But it's much more in terms of precisely national security issues like fighting terrorism. She also says that she's not interested in uh, overseas operations for stabilization of African countries, for instance. It's really about direct uh, uh, response to direct threats on France uh, national security. So another area where there might be some changes would be trade, possibly. Globalization, not super popular in France traditionally. Glo no, exactly. And she plays on that a lot. And um, she has a very protectionist agenda in general, and obviously on trade in particular. That's a big difference between a Frexit and a Brexit. The Brexit strategy is about free trade with everyone and having partners uh, all over the world. That is absolutely not what Marine Le Pen has in mind. She says, on the contrary, we want to uh, uh, have national-based uh, national uh, economic policies and we want to claim control not just on migration but on all the various economy, whether it's finance, whether it's trade. It's a much more protectionist agenda and it's the same on migration and it's the same on, on many other topics. And what about, maybe just to finish the foreign policy area, what about transatlantic relations, Toro? Because we, we saw Le Pen was one of the first people to congratulate Donald Trump on this thing. So traditionally, they've been quite anti-American, haven't they? But maybe Trump could turn them into the most Atlanticist party. I remember what uh, Jeremy Shapiro, a research director at ECFR, said about uh, Trump's fascination for authoritarian figures. And I guess to some extent that applies to Marine Le Pen as well. I think there is... Uh, for her a fascination, maybe not a fascination, maybe an admiration for leaders she considers to have <coughs> taken back control in their country. So namely Vladimir Putin uh, in Russia and definitely Donald Trump um, in the US. And I think she, it makes sense for her to say that she would like to replicate that model. She keeps saying that Brexit is a success when actually Brexit hasn't really happened yet. And she keeps saying that the US is uh, doing much better since Donald Trump has arrived. So I think she definitely um, legit, I mean, it legitimizes her that these people have managed to attain their goals. So there are two more things that we should talk about. One is what happens, uh, you know, after the elections, the whole process of forming a government. And the other is like, who's in the government? So maybe Manuel, you can tell us a bit about the kind of process if, if, if she wins the, the, the election as president. If you she wins the election, elections. exactly. If she wins the election on May 7, then there is one week, uh, more or less, before uh, the moment when she does uh, arrive at the Elysee. And then the French president 
nominates a prime minister who then uh, nominates his uh, government, the member of the, of the cabinet. So you have a, gov a government before the legislative election. Legislative election will take place mid-June uh, and mid-June we will see who, whether the president, whoever he or she is, uh, whether the president has a majority. And given what I have said earlier about France political system being now not just a two-party system, but a three or even maybe four-party system, this is going to be quite uh, tricky for anyone to get a majority. It will probably be even, even trickier for uh, the Front National, for Marine Le Pen, to get a majority with her own party alone, to have absolute majority with her own party alone. And so the key question is, can she build a coalition with someone else? And if yes, then who would that be? Would that be a coalition with a party as such, or would that be a coalition with um, uh, individuals who join uh, uh, the Front National government? Uh, how does the party, the Les Républicains, seem uh, the only one with whom that might be possible? I'm not saying plausible, but possible. How does Les Républicains react if they lose badly and are even not qualified for the second round, and then Marine Le Pen wins? There might be a big recomposition. But even in this instance, it's very hard to imagine how the Front National can have absolute majority by itself. And therefore, you have this problem of whether you're able to build a coalition or there's a coalition without you, what, so, what in France they call cohabitation. Yeah, so the cohabitation is when the president and the governing party are on op opposing sides. And that used to be much more common when the legislative and presidential cycles weren't aligned exactly. in the way that they are now. But presumably be pretty different in these circumstances from when you had a sort of uh, Gaullist party and a socialist prime minister. Um, would they even be able to work together? Because, you know, you saw Jacques Chirac and Lionel Jospin, even though they'd run against each other for president, working <coughs> together reasonably effectively. It wasn't the happiest arrangement in the world, but it, the country didn't break down. Would there be, you know, what happens to the to the whole idea of governing France if, uh, if, you, if you're in these circumstances? I, I mean, I think there is a lot at stake for her. It will be her objective if she does win uh, on May 7th to say that she needs a majority. And I guess she's going to campaign even harder uh, to have a majority in the Assemblée Nationale. And it might be the, the first time that the legislative elections are going to be so important because it's either going to be the opportunity for people who are uh, fighting her to actually have a Republican, in the etymologic sense of the world, uh, Assemblée Nationale, or she, she might win. And if there's always the possibility, if she's not happy with the result, that she dissolved the Assemblée Nationale to have... Uh, you to know. keep on having elections until the... <laughs> yeah. And what about, you know, because if, if you go back to some of the things you were talking about, Manuel, uh, on her agenda, like having a referendum on Europe and etc. I mean, do you need to have a... What kind of parliamentary majority do you actually need to, to do some of the things that she's talking about? There are, there are very limited things that a president can do alone uh, if, if the parliament and the government is from another majority. But one of the things that it can do is calling for a referendum. There is one article in the Constitution which allows the president to call for a referendum without having to, to deal, to make deal with the, uh, with the parliament, with the majority in parliament. Um, the problem is that everything that you need to do to prepare for that moment, and for instance, in the case of the referendum on exiting the EU, she says, I will first go and try to have a deal, and then, if I don't have the deal, then I will call for the referendum. 
um, well, she can't negotiate a deal if she doesn't have a government that is working on her uh, positions. Is that and, true? Because one of the interesting things is it is the President of the Republic rather than the Prime Minister who's represented in the European Council who meets other European figures, even under cohabitation. So when there was cohabitation, it was very, very um, uh, factious. And, and, yeah. and the President works on the basis of what the government does. It's the government's uh, the, 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 the diplomacy the, all the contacts with the other governments. So why, why would the other European governments say, yes, we'll negotiate with you? They're working with the government. They're not working with the president. The president is as a small office uh, and doesn't have any uh, determining authority on what French policy is. Between 86 and 88, first cohabitation, it was, uh, there was a lot of infightings. And Mitterrand kept on... Uh, trying to prevent uh, the government led by Jacques Chirac to do the things that it wanted to do. It didn't want to sign on certain uh, executive orders. It didn't want to agree on certain kinds of reforms. It kept on going to the public and say, I disapprove of this policy. But it was not leading an alternative policy or a parallel policy. So, Tara, if we do have uh, a government in place under the... It sounds like you, neither of you think that... Um, she will necessarily manage to get a, a coalition or a majority in, in Parliament, even if she is elected. But that being said, if she is elected, we're in very unknown territory. So there are a lot of weird things that might happen. If it has happened, um, <laughs> then probably the legislative majority can happen too. Who would be in her government? Tell us a bit about the, the elites within the Front National. We talked a little bit about, you know, the Le Pen family members and Philippot, but who else is there? That's the big question, the big unknown, I would say. Everyone is looking at it. So she's talking a lot about a uh, potential prime minister. She named uh, Filippo very clearly because he said at some point that he might be the most worthy candidate. But to be honest, we don't really know. There, are, there have been many scandals around um, the people dealing with the financial issues at the FN who are really on the far right and who are the traditional far right uh, people who've been cast aside in French politics. So we have absolutely no idea who uh, her government would be constituted of. And again, the question is, if she leads a coalition of several parties, then I guess there would probably be people from Les Républicains, people from the FN, maybe other people from the far left as well, who'd like to join uh, the Eurosceptic, uh, you know, band, of, <laughs> new band of French politics. So we have absolutely no idea. I think they are working on it quite a lot. They have uh, civil servants who are working with them on the programs, but actually people who would be known to the French public and who would be, you know, known figures, we don't really have an idea of who they would be. Can you, because we, um, I know that you've been looking a lot at the whole development of elites within the, the Front National. Can you talk a bit about the preparations they've been doing to prepare for government? So they uh, have been trying to recruit as much as possible uh, people who have a background in political science and economics they have been preparing for that actually for the past two, three years. So clearly she and Filippo and the rest of the team have been anticipating that. They want to have worthy candidates at the legislative elections. They want to have worthy candidates in future ministerial cabinets. So there is, I mean, again, it's the idea of the grand strategy and they're working on that because they want to be prepared. And I think because they believe that they can get to power. And this makes it even more real, I would say, compared to the Trump campaign, even the Brexit campaign, to some extent, we can see here that there is a degree of professionalism that we cannot deny. So 
Manuel, how is the deep state in France going to react to a Le Pen presidency? You're a member of that of that uh, holy caste of people who've been through the École Nationale d'Administration. You've worked for various different governments in the past before uh, coming into the think tank world. How do you think your former colleagues will respond to, to Marine Le Pen? Will they see themselves as... Uh, being in opposition to her or will they work with, uh, with the Le Pen government? Part of what Tara uh, was saying uh, translated into the fact that precisely people from the famous or infamous Ecole Nationale d'Administration are now working with the Front National and openly so. And Filippo himself, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, a, a former uh, student from the Ecole Nationale d'Administration. So there are the, the press obviously uh, loves uh, making headlines with an op-ed by a high civil servant who says, I will never serve under a Le Pen government. Um, the key question is, will that be a majority or will that be only a few uh, people? Will people wait and see until the legislative election? What is the government? Who is there? Who is, what is the parliamentary majority? And then you will have the same kind of issues that... Uh, all things uh, being very different, but with the uh, Trump administration, would you rather work for them so that you prevent the biggest mistakes, or do you, on the contrary, refuse to work with uh, such people? And you can see in the US that this kind of dilemma is uh, going on, and people are still discussing about the merits of the two of the two proposals. I suspect they will find civil servants to do what they have to do, also because the French tradition of civil service is you work for the state, you work for the republic. You don't work, uh, you, only a limited number of people work for the minister themselves politically, and these don't have to be civil servants. And so most people will probably wait to see what happens and what, how many of them will, uh, uh, under which circumstances would a big number of them say, that's enough, I quit. That's, that's a very difficult question to answer. And I would say that actually this election really marked the end of what uh, Jacques Chiral called the cordon sanitaire. So really the idea of not talking to the FN, uh, not discussing with them as any normal party, any normal candidate. This was completely different. Marine Le Pen in the debate with the four other main candidates, everybody seemed to find that it was normal that she was there. And in a way it was normal because she's the highest in the polls. Wow, okay, well, we'll I think we're gonna to have to wait and see what happens uh, in the first round and in the second round to see whether any of this actually takes place. But in the meantime, people can read about what's going on and try and understand the, the world better. And that brings us to the last bit of the podcast, which is the bookshelf segment. Maybe the two of you can tell us what books people should read if they want to really understand what's happening with the Front National. Do you want to go first, Tara? So I would suggest uh, reading Filippo Premier, Le Nouveau Visage du Front National, written by Astrid de Villene and Marie Laba. It's really about how Filippo got into the FN, actually in a very little time managed to rise uh, to the vice presidency of the party. And the second book I would recommend is a bit different. It's really uh, working on the ground. It's called Nouvelle du Front written by Marine Tondelier, who's a municipal councillor in Enin Beaumont, it's a very uh, small but famous town now in the north of France. She's a green um, municipal councillor and she really fights on a daily, weekly basis against the FN and she actually details it in a very interesting manner. And I think that's, that's also important on a more positive note, I guess. And what about you, Manuel? What, what books would you recommend? So there is, there is this thing 
that is happening right now in France, which is broader than just the sympathy that people have for the Front National, which has to do with uh, their level of dissatisfaction with French politics and with the gap that they perceive between what politicians say and what politicians do, etc., etc. One of the uh, books that has been published recently about that is by Brice Tinturier, who is a pollster, and it's called Plus rien à faire, plus rien à foutre. Uh, meaning, I, I couldn't care less, uh, and the second uh, I sentence give a fuck, I think is the less polite <laughs> way of expressing it. And, and this is exactly that. This is people uh, are able to say, well, you know what, if she's elected, how, how much of a difference does that make? I, I don't think it makes that much of a difference, and therefore I couldn't care less. And, and that is part of what is another factor that may help uh, Le Pen uh, to win the election, which is this is probably going to be the presidential election and then the First Republic with the lowest turnout that was ever. Okay, well, lots to read, lots to think about. We've got a few weeks to get our heads around the idea of uh, President Le Pen, President Le Pen, and um, it's certainly been fascinating talking to the two of you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do give us a review on iTunes and a rating on iTunes. Tweet about it, write about it on our Facebook page or on your Facebook page so that your friends can find out more about it. And do feel free to write to me, mark.leonard at ecfr.eu if you have any comments or ideas or suggestions for future podcasts. But in the meantime, from Manuel Lafont-Apnoui, Tara Varma and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke and our editor is Bolin Goemin.